Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, and you're listening to season four of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. On previous episodes of the show, we've taken a look at the important role of our gut microbiome to health and how probiotic organisms factor into this. Today, we're going to dive into a related topic that, and explore the links between the gut microbiome and the brain. Our guest today is an expert on this topic. Dr. Vanessa Sperandio is the chair of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She got her bachelor's in biology and her master's and PhD in molecular genetics at the State University of Campinas in Brazil. She was a Latin American Pew Fellow in Biomedical Sciences, an Ellison Foundation New Scholar, a Burroughs Welcome Fund Investigator in the Pathogenesis of Infectious Diseases, and a National Academy Kavli Frontiers of Science Fellow. She received the 2015 Eli Lilly and Company Elenco Research Award and won the 2014 JSK Discovery Fast Track Challenge. In 2013, she was elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology, and she was elected as an American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Fellow in 2022. So she has got lots of awards that really establishes her as one of the leaders in this field. And her research is really cool. She investigates the chemical stress and nutritional signaling at the interface among the mammalian host, beneficial microbiota, and invading bacterial pathogens. The main tenet of research in her laboratory is the study of how bacterial cells sense several mammalian hormones, leading to rewiring and reprogramming of bacterial transcription towards host and niche adaptation. She's also identified several bacterial receptors to mammalian hormones and has reported that invading pathogens can hijack these inter-kingdom signaling systems to promote virulence expression. She's also translated these basic science concepts into strategies to develop novel approaches to antimicrobial therapies. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Vanessa. It's really, really great to see you. Thank you, Cassie, and thank you for the invitation to talk about our work a little bit here. Absolutely. And a little bit more background for the audience. Vanessa and I met this summer at Cambridge University in the UK um, during a cell signaling meeting. And after I heard her present her work, I just absolutely knew I had to have her on the show to share this exciting research with you all. So I'm really excited you're here. And maybe let's just start with the basics. Um, what can you share with us about the, the fundamental ties between the gut and the brain? So, uh you have a very innervated gut that connects to the brain, to the gut-brain axis. So you're gonna have this chemicals that we call neurotransmitters that some are produced in the brain, some are produced in the gut, and they're all present in the gut. And bacteria that live in the gut are there and seeing these chemicals all of the time, and sometimes even modifying them a little bit. And, uh, this chemistry basically helps, you know, hosts and the bacteria that live in the gut to kind of coexist in a nice way together. But these kinds of relationships can be disrupted either by changes in the composition of the microbiota in the gut per se, or by, you know, a pathogen invading the intestine and taking advantage of this language. So is a neurotransmitter basically a language that our brain speaks or, or senses, or what are neurotransmitters really? 
uh, it's kind of like a language that our brain speaks. There are very small chemicals. There are different classes of them. For example, the ones that people call, uh, think about the most are things such as serotonin, mm -hmm. melatonin, um, and adrenaline and noradrenaline. So some of them will make you more stressed. Some of them will make you less stressed. And uh, those ty that type of chemistry is also understood by several bacterial cells. And uh, we usually don't appreciate how important the gastrointestinal tract is for uh, the presence of the, and the production of this, uh, of this neurotransmitters that act in our brain too, such as, for example, serotonin, which is the feel-good hormone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and serotonin, 95% of it is made in the intestine, not in the brain. You're kidding. Wow. So yeah. what we... So when you say it's being made in the intestine, is that also informed by the types of foods that we eat? Are there certain foods or is that even known? Or is it just certain groups of bacteria that we know at this stage are responsible for that? I think the association with food would be a little bit too much of a hand waving at this point, but okay. uh, serotonin is made from an amino acid called tryptophan, okay. which you ingest with food. So if you do have more tryptophan, there is more uh, there's more molecules there that can be used to make, to increase the level of serotonin in your brain. Great. And in your gut. So, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. So we know that bacteria signal with one another. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about why bacteria signal with one another? Like, why are they talking to each other in the gut? Just so we can lay some groundwork for what's actually happening there. So they have to coordinate their behavior, especially in the gut where you have this uh, lots of different species of bacteria together. Uh, they, they like different environments. Some of them like to be in places where you have a lot of air. Some of them like to be in places where you don't have air. Some of them can use complex carbohydrates or break them down. Like for example, a mite, that's something that you get in potatoes. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, while some of them are cannot do that and just have to rely on other members of this complex microbiota to do that for them. So there is this relationships and for them to coordinate that they have to signal and some of them will use what we call strict proposed signaling molecules, which uh, don't seem to be used as metabolites, but some of them will kind of have a metabolite moonlight between being a metabolite and the signal kind of letting them know whether you have more of this amino acid, more of this carbohydrate, who is using what, so they can adjust their metabolism towards using something else so they don't clash and compete with other members of the microbiota. They're going to be primarily using that so they can kind of coexist or find a right, the right niche, the right place in the intestine to be. That's great. And so, the role of bacteria in our intestine is obviously in helping to break down our food. And when we have these nutrients that are released or in some cases even produced by bacteria, they cross over that gut barrier and enter into our circulation. Is that also how these neurotransmitters reach our brain? Is it through that similar pathway through the blood or how, how do they reach our brain? So they can go two different ways, right? So they can go through the vagal nerve which is a big nerve that goes in between the brain, the brain and the gut, or they can actually go systemically to the blood, to the blood, through the blood, 
and cross the blood-brain barrier and get access to the brain that way. Interesting. So I know a lot of your work has also looked at um, kind of neurologic diseases and the gut microbiota. Like within the emerging research today, are there links between the gut microbiome composition and certain disease outcomes when it comes to neuropsychology? Yes, there's actually several. Uh, a lot of them uh, still, um, it's a nascent field, so uh, there's still a lot of correlations being made, but there is lots of like very mechanistic studies showing now, showing up nowadays. Uh, for example, there, there is um, people who have autism, and this is work from the Masmanian lab, uh, they have a lot of issues with uh, digesting food and their microbiome. And they have shown that the microbiome is actually really important in breaking down certain molecules. And if you have more taurine, for example, that can affect the outcome of autism and the outcomes of what you see in the brain and autism-related behaviors. So there are more and more examples coming out that, you know, these things are existing. And uh, people are looking now, for example, in Parkinson's, because there is a very strong correlation with what kind of bacteria you have in your gut. And that differs in people who have Parkinson's versus the ones that, that don't. Same thing with schizophrenia. So there is a lot of interest right now in the field into get into the mechanism of that because maybe, you know, the idea that everybody has, maybe you can manipulate with some sort of probiotic to, to have a better outcome. Yeah, that's really, that's a really interesting approach. I, I was familiar with some of the studies that have come out looking at, for example, correlations between certain microbiota composition and diabetes or other kind of chronic diseases. But I think this, this area on, on kind of mental health is really just beginning to emerge. How, how, do, how do scientists actually evaluate the composition of the gut microbiome? What sorts of experiments would they, would they perform to, to study these differences? So uh, normally the starting point would be to get cohorts of human patients. You know, you have somebody, for example, who has a neurological disease versus somebody who does not. And usually the starting point is to basically sequence the microbiome, which means basically tell who is there, okay? Mm -hmm. Because we cannot culture all of the bacteria in the gut. We don't know how to culture all of them. So just by culturing, you're gonna basically lose a lot and not have mm -hmm. very precise information. So what they do is they just sequence everything, all of the DNA of the bacteria that are there so they can know who is there and, yeah. and see what kind of species are there and what are the ones who are different between people who have a neurologic disorder versus the ones that don't. So that's the starting point. And then uh, to move towards studying the mechanism of how that could possibly be affecting the outcome. And, you know, if it's the chicken and the egg, it's the host, it's the bacteria kind of thing. Uh, what, we, what people start moving towards are mouse models. Okay. So you can use germ-free mouse and you can also deplete the microbiota with antibiotics and look side by side by 
populating the microbiota with the species, for example, that changed between somebody who has depression and not doesn't have depression. Okay, and then basically look to see whether that's affecting depression types of behaviors, for example, in mice. Great, and so you can basically create an experimental system to look at these these exactly. differences and see what the outcomes. That's fascinating. Usually, you just you kind of try to go from a complex situation to kind of try to zero in a little bit and be a little minimalistic to figure out, you know, if abundance of this species is helping this behavior and why, because then you can manipulate genetically the bacteria. You can also look at the host pathways and then try in mice, you also have the power of genetics. So you can use, um, you know, genetically modified mice in different pathways to figure out how these interactions are changing and hopefully get to a causation situation. But of course, you always have to be very careful <laughs> with what to say because a mouse is not a human being. So, but yeah, this is one way to start getting to the questions on, you know, how do we move this forward? That's great. I just, I love this entire field because it, it, it you know, maybe someday these types of studies could help us to better diagnose patients, do you think, or maybe even create new treatments that target the microbiome? It could be also, yes, it could be for diagnosis, it could be for treatments. Uh, for example, it might be that a certain, uh, a certain, the metabolic situation created by certain types of bacteria, the metabolites in there affects um, affect a neurological disease in a better or in a worsen way. So mm -hmm. you can try to see scenarios in which you can start giving a certain metabolite to people or basically, hopefully, uh, we get to a point that we can, you know, enhance a metabolite, for example, in a diet and, and have a better outcome for something that we had trouble treating before. That's great. So really treating with foods. <laughs> Goes back treating to Hippocrates, right? Food is medicine, just in ways that I think he could have never imagined <laughs> all those centuries ago. What yeah. they say is that, you know, a bacterial cell just like any other cell in the universe, what they want is a food and a home, right? The home mm -hmm. is the place in the gut inside of the host. And the food would be the carbon and nitrogen sources that come out of breaking down molecules that they can eat and that you can eat. So that's, it could be a beneficial situation or it can be a non-beneficial situation depending on the relationship. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's really it's really interesting to explore this concept of coevolution between humans and our microbiota. I mean, from the moment of birth, we're basically coded in bacteria and they start to, to you know, enter into um, our system through the gut. Um, what can you tell us about the why behind why certain bacteria have receptors for these human neurotransmitters, or, or is that known? Like how many of these species have these neurotransmitters or what do we actually know about this space? I think starting to, we're starting to appreciate that a lot of bacteria have receptors for different neurotransmitters. A lot of species do, okay? The ones my lab worked primarily with were receptors for adrenaline and noradrenaline, serotonin, mm -hmm. and endocannabinoid receptors, okay? And we see them in um, Anthrobacteriaceae, which is a big part of your flora that lives in a more 
uh, aerobic environment. Uh, they all have receptors for that. Uh, and the reason for that is because I don't think they necessarily evolved to sense your neurotransmitters, but they tend to make molecules that are very similar to the ones that we make. Okay. For example, a striking example is serotonin. Um, bacteria in your gut are, makes, make a molecule called indole. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they make different types of indoles, but they are the molecule itself per se, the chemistry is very similar to serotonin. And both of them uh, are synthesized from tryptophan, which is this amino acid that we ingest in food and uh, bacteria also make tryptophan, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the, the crossing goes both ways. So we, for example, identify the receptor in bacteria that senses both indole and serotonin, but at the same time, there are other groups who have identified receptors in human cells that are sensing indole and responding to indole and reprogramming your cells. And indole has been found in the brain and uh, it has been very beautifully uh, shown by the Jai Yunnan lab in Texas A&M. I probably murdered his name. They've showed very nicely that it increases the intestinal barrier so you have less leakiness in the intestine. So for leaky gut, basically it improves or reduces the risk of leaky gut. Wow, it okay. Yeah, it, it reduces that. So, and they have shown that very nicely. That's really interesting. Um, I did a, I did some work, uh, I guess a year or so ago with Reinhold Jones lab here at Emory. And we were looking at different types of cabbage of brassica oleracea, which also has indole compounds and its impact on the nerve two um, receptors, nerve two signaling in the gut. And, you know, that was really a fascinating foray to understand the cytoprotective effects of some of these compounds found in cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Um, still again, very early, very early pilot data in flies, but, um, really interesting nonetheless. Yeah. So it's, it is funny when I think about certain foods make me feel better, like chocolate makes me feel better. <laughs> Eating fermented cabbage makes me feel better. I wonder if it has anything to do with some of these, these receptors and, you know, neurotransmitter signaling that's happening. Um, but you think it's kind of still too early to understand these, these roles yet? I think it's a little too early to to basically just go ahead and say, you know, if you eat yeah. this, you will feel better because of that. Um, and it's going to be better for your brain. I think that, you know, we this we're, we hope to get to a situation for that. But mm -hmm. I think we have to be very careful <laughs> when yeah. we make certain statements. Because you, you know, there there were situations with probiotics, for example, right, mm -hmm. uh, in which probiotics are generally considered good for you, and good for your health, but uh, there were cases in which the wrong strain of probiotics ended up used, and it caused harm instead of causing good. Instead of help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why you know we, I think we really need to get to the nitty gritty of things. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Well, okay, so we've laid this foundation of the important role of bacteria having these receptors for neurotransmitters in the gut and their signaling movement of these neurotransmitters through the vagal nerve and also through systemically through the blood. Now, I want to dive into an area of research that you've really expanded, and that has to do with addiction and the science of addiction. 
what can you tell us about about your work on addiction and this gut brain axis? So this whole work started because uh, we had found uh, that bacteria have a receptor for noradrenaline, mm -hmm. which is a, st a stimulant, okay? And um, I was giving a talk in a Gordon conference, in a research conference uh, on addiction, which I was, because of a collaboration that I have, uh, mm -hmm. I was like a variety speaker in there. And I met Santiago Cuesta, who asked me to join my postdoc. He's a neuroscientist. And he was like, I really, you know, I really want to get into that brain axis and I want to learn microbiology. I know the neuroscience, the addiction part, and I want to really blend the two. And then he came to my lab. And the first thing he saw was that it's very well documented that, uh, for example, psychoactive drugs such as cocaine, they increase the amount of noradrenaline in your brain. Okay. okay? Uh, it's thought there were a couple of reports saying that maybe that also happened in the intestine, but Santiago went there and saw that it really did. Okay. And what happens when that, when that occurs is that <clears throat> bacteria such as E. coli, okay, can sense that. So in the case of commensal E. coli, they sense that in the gut, okay? Uh, so they're to, sensing the noradrenaline, not the cocaine? or The noradrenaline, okay. not okay. the cocaine. So okay. when you put a mouse in cocaine, the levels of noradrenaline, both in the brain and in the gut, go up. Okay. And then E. coli can sense that, okay? If it's a pathogenic E. coli, that's bad for you because that activates the virulence program really highly, okay? Mm. And it makes it worse. If it's a commensal E. coli, we thought that nothing bad was going to happen, right? Because commensal E. coli do not cause disease on you. But what, uh, what happens then is by sensing this, you have, it's been shown that cocaine causes, that people who are on cocaine and mice who are on cocaine have an expansion of commensal E. coli in the gut. And from what we know of the signaling cascade that goes on through this receptor in E. coli, it adapts E. coli to live in the gut very happily in terms of what kind of metabolism that it has, what kind of adhesions that it expresses. So it makes sense that it will bloom, okay? Mm -hmm. And what we did then, we went minimal, minimalistic, okay? And just got mice and colonized with just commensal E. coli. And what we noticed was that uh, the levels of glycine, which is a metabolite, that E. coli uses as a nitrogen source were decreasing in the gut and were decreasing in the brain, okay? Huh, okay. And glycine is actually made out of sarcosine. Sarcosine is used as a, supple uh, a supplement that athletes take all the time to build muscle. So, okay. Okay, and both sarcosine and glycine get depleted. It's not because the bacteria are using sarcosine, they're using the glycine but the sarcosine is the whole, your cells are trying to make more glycine because you need glycine too, <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when that happens, glycine in the brain actually is a very nice neurotransmitter that basically acts on the pathways that affect addiction behaviors. So when you have too much coli in your brain, deplete, in your gut, depleting glycine, that depletes in the brain, and the mice in this case became 
uh, had enhanced behaviors towards drug addiction, towards cocaine. So for example, they would, one of the behaviors that would do is locomotion. So a mouse in cocaine runs around much faster than a mouse not in cocaine. You have, you have a different. graduate student counting laps as they're like running around the cage. <laughs> no, we, we have boxes with electrodes yeah, yeah. on them, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're not that mean. Uh, so, and then basically what happens is if you basically have too much coli and have dropped levels of glycine, that behavior is enhanced and they run a lot. Active. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other behavior we see enhancement in is uh, what we call drug seeking behavior. So you have these boxes that have different uh, visual, tactile uh, things to it. And in one chamber, and usually you just get the mice and they go from one box to the other because there's a little door normally. And they spend the same amount of time in this box and this box. If there's nothing mm -hmm. interesting or different happening. However, if you consistently just give them cocaine in one box, they tend to go, when they get addicted to, they tend to seek, seek the box where they always get cocaine. And then you kind of figure out how many times they're seeking to see whether they have enhanced seeking or decreased seeking for the drug. And the mice that have less glycine because they have more E. coli in their gut, they seek the drug way more than the ones that don't. And, Interesting. And we can mitigate that by either giving sarcosine, which is the precursor of glycine or glycine directly to these animals, because mm -hmm. that resets the levels in the brain and then they stop having this enhanced behavior or by monoclonizing them in the gut with an E. coli that cannot uptake glycine. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's stop here for a second and break this down just to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So on cocaine, these mice um, basically experience an E. coli bloom in the gut. This E. coli consumes a lot of the glycine and also the levels of sarcosine in the brain are depleted because human cells need glycine as well. And as a result of this depletion in glycine and sarcosine, they start to become more and more active and seek more drugs. Is that yes. right? Okay. And then if you supplement their bodies with more, with more glycine or more sarcosine? Either or. Either or that addiction seeking or, or drug seeking behavior reduces? Reduces, yes. Wow. Or you can give them a strain of E. coli that does not depend on glycine so they don't, it, the bloom doesn't actually end up consuming all that glycine. Yes. That is amazing. Oh my gosh. In wow. mice. We don't know <laughs> in mice. In mice, of course, of course. This is in mice in and mice. this show is not about medical advice. So if you are suffering from any sort of addiction problems, do please um, seek out medical care. This is not a, a medical show. Um, but the, the science behind this is fascinating. It, it makes so much sense to me on, on some levels because, you know, there is this connectivity between the brain and gut and these chemical signals are being consumed by both the human cells and the bacterial cells. And so, of course, if you run out of one of these signals, um, it's going to change behavior. That's fascinating. Yeah, and the behavior changes not only towards drug addiction, but it can probably change towards other psychological disorders, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that it affects uh, things like autism get affected, depression, and people are getting to the nitty-gritty of that. 
that's yeah. not what we do but uh there is a lot of a lot of labs that are interested uh in in getting to these questions nowadays and so have you you have you've successfully implanted these bacteria with with mutants of e coli that don't take up the glycine is that is that correct are those are those mutants or are they found in nature or they isolated from someone else's gut just by chance as a variation or uh no those are mutants that we mm -hmm. we made okay we made in the lab mm -hmm. yes uh if they are found in nature i'm i'm not sure that we would have to actually look into the basis to see if this mutation happens in E. coli very frequently mm -hmm. because E. coli does have several ways to use nitrogen, you know, glycine yeah. being one of them. So it's nothing essential for E. coli. So it is feasible that you might find mutants in nature and who knows, you know, maybe people carry the mutant or not. That could be interesting. Yeah. So my mind's always like thinking forward towards translational studies in the future. Um, are there plans to look at, at human populations of, of, for example, cocaine addicts and, and, and non-drug users to see what, you know, what this looks like, I guess, from a, or I guess this has already been done, you're saying, the microbiomes of, of cocaine addicts has, has already been evaluated. Yes, they have. But the, mm -hmm. the, the difficulty, I think, with humans is that when you're evaluating their microbiome, is it is it causation or is it yeah you know, because people who are highly addicted to cocaine i i think we could all argue they're probably not their nutrition is not very very good yeah that's a good point mm -hmm. yeah so that, they are they might have good. changes in their microbiota because of changes in their nutritional nutrition to begin with and you don't know if it's like the cocaine itself, it's the microbiota, or if it's the, the changes in the nutrition that are mm. causing all of these changes. So it becomes very complex to get to a human study with that. Yeah. What I'm wondering if there's anything similar that's been explored with other stimulants, I'm thinking, for example, with methamphetamine or with the botanical stimulant, COT, um, with cathionine, which is another, like, and those I, I believe also, um, well, I'm not sure what's happened with the, with like their exact pathways. I'm wondering is is are those also? Do you have plans to look at those in the future? Also, I'm also assuming these are difficult to study in the lab because of all the DEA permits. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we have we have well Santiago in his independent mm -hmm. career has plans to continue with methamphetamine too because mm -hmm. you need a second type of psychostimulant that acts a little bit different than cocaine. Uh, in terms of addiction, I know there are some studies that are starting to be done with opioids. Interesting. Okay, so okay. not a stimulant, but a depressant. Yes. And see what happens there. Mm -hmm. <sighs> with opioids, and uh, this is kind of interesting, but like, for example, we've done some studies with, um, <clears throat> with fluoxetine which is uh, an inhibitor of serotonin uptake in the gut. And is, is fluoxetine, is that known by a brand name? Is that um, yeah. what is Prozac? It? Prozac, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, we noted that if we had mice, for example, that, accum that um, accumulated serotonin in the gut, okay, because you make the serotonin, you throw it in the gut, and then 
you have uh, an uptake pump that pumps it inside of your cell too so it gets to the brain and does all of the good stuff mm -hmm. serotonin does for you right so you have these mice that uh, do not have the pump so they accumulate serotonin in the gut and serotonin usually suppresses uh, pathogenesis of say things like E. coli that causes diarrhea mm -hmm. so if you have a lot of serotonin in your gut you're less susceptible to that at least the okay. mice are less susceptible to that okay? the mice are okay okay the mice are less susceptible to that and uh, what Prozac does is to inhibit this pump so it increases the amount of serotonin in your gut so if you give Prozac to a mouse you have the same we see the same situation in which you decrease the amount of the pathogenesis of E. coli causing, you know, diarrhea in the gut. So you can have, you know, again, an antidepressant that is acting in a way that it's also uh, that it's also modifying the behavior of a, an enteric pathogen. Wow. Well, let's, let's, directly. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about this idea of like enteric pathogens and the role those may have on various kind of mental health disorders. Um, first of all, what is what is the difference? You've used these words commensal and pathogen. What are, what are the differences between a commensal gut microbe and a pathogenic gut microbe? Okay, so a commensal gut microbe is some is a microbe that lives in your in your intestine and doesn't cause you any harm. Okay. Okay. Uh, in some cases, you can call them symbionts because they kind of help you. Okay. They, but a commensal, simplistically saying, it's not causing you any harm. It lives with you happily ever after. Okay. Mm -hmm. A pathogenic uh, bacteria, carb-carrying pathogenic bacteria, okay, uh, will cause disease if you encounter it. So I'll give you some examples. Salmonella is a carb-carrying pat enteric pathogen. Okay. Okay, mm -hmm. if you ingest salmonella, you will get sick. Okay, uh, same thing with, uh, for example, E. coli 157, which is the one we work with the most, which started with undercooked hamburger meat. Uh, but there's outbreaks of all kinds. Yeah, that's the one that can actually kill through like renal failure, right? The 157. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous for children under five. Yeah. Okay? And, um, and that one is a bona fide pathogen. You get it, you get sick. There is no way around that. Um, certain strains of Vibra cholera, the ones that have toxin, if you get it, you get it. Cholera, that's bad. Cholera is bad. Cholera yeah. is really bad too. Yeah. So those bacteria, so what makes them pathogenic is the fact is that they have weapons that commensals mm -hmm. don't have that will basically make your cells kind of work for them. Mm -hmm. And... And when that's happening, it makes you sick. It will cause, you know, you're gonna try to fight infection. Uh, it can be because you have too much inflammation in certain cases, and it can be sometimes because some, for example, the toxins that cholera has will change the way your cells respond to osmolarity and you ended up losing a lot of water. So right? lots, lots of diarrhea because of that. Lots mm -hmm. of the, that profuse diarrhea that you see. In the case of E. coli, the toxin kills your cells. Wow. And it's killing the cell because to liberate nutrients, right? That's mm -hmm. the end of the day why, why these things happen. It just basically acts and kills the cell. 
and that's why you become sick. Okay. So, so we have these, we have commensals that can also be symbionts. Then we have these very harmful pathogenic ones that can kill cells or create ma massive change in the intestinal um, environment. What do we know about what's going on with these pathogenic strains or species and neurotransmitter signaling? Do they also have these receptors? And you mentioned earlier this concept of virulence. Do they influence that system somehow? And Give us some examples of what you mean by virulence. Yes, I'll give you some examples. For example, they do have the receptors, okay? Okay. So I'll give you an example of E. coli 157, okay? That's the one we study the most. So it has, it has two receptors for adrenaline and noradrenaline, mm -hmm. which is the same receptor. And when there is an increase in adrenaline and noradrenaline, this receptor sees that and it turns on the program in the bacteria that promotes expression of these toxins and other things that it needs to attach to your reptilium in the intestine and stop destroying your reptilium in the, in the intestine, right? And increasing the amount of toxin that gets into your system, okay? But the good news is they can be tricked by other neurotransmitters. For example, ser the example I gave you from serotonin, serotonin has the opposite effect. It acts on a different receptor and it that normally would be firing for making the bacteria virulent. But what serotonin does is get the receptor to shut down. Okay. So the bacteria became less virulent because it cannot attach to your epithelium anymore. It cannot express the toxins to high levels anymore. And that's why you ended up getting, getting rid of it. You ended up mm -hmm. cleaning the infection uh, a lot faster. Another example of a neurotransmitter that acts like that is something you make in your gut, endocannabinoids. Okay. Okay, so uh, we don't have receptors for the plant cannabinoids because we evolved for that. We have receptors for our own endocannabinoids that we make, okay, that turned out to also recognize the plant ones. And if you have a situation in which and we've done that pharmacologically or using knockout mice, which you enhance the amount of endocannabinoids in the gut, it also shuts down pathogenesis through by inhibiting the receptor that usually is activated by adrenaline. Okay, now I have to ask this obvious question here. Okay. In mice, has anyone <laughs> tried feeding cannabis products to mice to see if that influences pathogenesis or virulence in these types of infection models? A colleague of mine did, and hopefully you will be reading about that soon. Okay, Interesting. So okay. Okay. For a paper that JML is is putting out soon. Putting out. People. Great. Yes. Okay, that's a teaser. We'll have to get them on the show because, because that's just fascinating. These signals and how it's influenced the behavior of these bacteria. Because there is like all of these um, anecdotes out there, right? That. Uh, people who are on cannabis types of products uh, uh, have less colitis, they use it sometimes to, people who have IBS, IBD seems to ameliorate the symptoms and the diarrhea mm -hmm. associated with that. So there is of course the fact that they act on the cannabinoid receptor in the gut, but they also act on some of the bacteria that might help promote that. Sounds, wow. This is like an onion. Every layer has like, okay, so, you know, it's not just the cell, the human cells, it's the bacteria cells, the types of different bacteria and all their signaling um, 
pathways. Fascinating. Yeah, they have to navigate a complex chemistry, right? Your intestine mm -hmm. is full of chemicals in there. Some of them made by yourself, some of them made by your microbiota, and uh, any bacteria that's in there, be it a commensal or a pathogen, has to be able to, to read that and integrate all of that information to basically program themselves to be in the right place at the right time. That's great. Well, Vanessa, I love your research. I think it's so incredibly important um, because Thank so you. many... So many people are, are dealing with a variety of issues that are related to the gut, whether it's inflammatory bowel disease or it's some of these other kind of psychoses that that and and mental health disorders that have you know really come into the spotlight as being a serious problem, um, and especially with regards to addiction. So I'm excited to see where your work goes in the future um, and that of your colleagues as well. What what's next on your plate? Um, what are you, what are you looking towards working on next within this this realm of research? Yeah, so one of the things we're interested in trying to map a little bit better uh, is to see um, to see the relationship between adrenaline and the endocannabinoids in the bacterial receptor per se. Mm -hmm. You know, to get Great. see, you know, are they are they occupying the same space or and competing each other out, or are they acting on different parts of this receptor type of thing? And the other thing, uh, so I told you, my colleague explored um, some of the cannabinoids. Um, and the case, I think it was CBD, uh, okay. but we want to see, you know, CBD and THC act differently in the mammalian receptor. Mm -hmm. So they, they, one of them acts on the side, the other one on the top. So that's why one has different effects than the other. The CBD doesn't, doesn't have the, the, if the effects that people seek with THC. So you don't right? get high with CBD. You don't get high with CBD. <laughs> yeah. No, no. CBD is yeah. considered pretty safe, actually. So yeah. um, we want to try to see if there, if A, uh, the bacteria also CTHC uh, and B, if, if it starts to see it differently, is it the same mechanism that's sensing the bacterial endocannabinoid or is it different? You yeah. Because wow. they that's different, so. Yeah. Well, these, these fundamental research questions are really, really important to understand the overall picture. Um, because like you said, you have things sitting on different ends of the receptor and they may have very different outcomes because of just the way they sit on those receptors. And um, this is really exciting. I mean, for any of the listeners out there that are interested in the field of microbiology, I mean, I think this shows how transdisciplinary, if you enter into one field, you can actually make big impacts um, across different disciplines by looking at some, some of these kind of basic science questions. Yeah, I think the key now uh, with multi, so a lot of research is becoming multidisciplinary because, mm -hmm. you know, things are integrated, right? Yeah, so yeah. You, you have to integrate microbiology with immunology, with neuroscience, with chemistry, mm -hmm. and biochemistry and genetics to start getting to, to, to how things work. And I think the key for that is to have collaborators with different expertises yeah you know, and do some serious, you know, uh, multidisciplinary research. And I think we're getting to that in science more and more nowadays. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. 
Okay, thank you for having me, Cash. I appreciate it too. Awesome. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, recorded today for you on Restream. I want to big, give a big shout out of thanks to our producers at Co-Conspiracy Entertainment, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. We are again in season four. We've got a lot more exciting episodes coming up for you this fall. And um, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our new um, things coming out. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.